After 1 Peter, we're going to go into 2 Peter. Imagine that. And then after 2 Peter, um, it's time to get back to the through the Bible. We paused the uh, through the Bible uh, for the COVID virus and felt Philippians and 1 Peter were applicable for us. And then we're going to jump back into Leviticus after 2 Peter. Uh, so start reading ahead for uh, Leviticus. So, Everybody doing okay? All right. Let's pray. The Holy Spirit is here. He's, he's with us. He's ready to instruct us through the word. So. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to read your word, to be challenged tonight. And God, we ask that our hearts would be open to what you'd want to speak to us. Thank you for your love for, for each person. Lord, you know what's going on in their lives. You know where their fears and anxieties and joys and sorrows, those listening at home and in person. And we want to draw near to you. We thank you that you draw near to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Exhortation means to be challenged to take the next step. Can you think of a, a person in your life that challenged you, that exhorted you? Sometimes uh, exhortations take on different tones. Sometimes it's a soft tone. It's the tone of a, a loving father or a caring mother. Sometimes it's a coach getting in your face, saying, all right, it's time to take the next step. I picture Peter as being a pretty strong man, a fisherman. Scripture tells us that he was able to pull Jesus, or, or Jesus pulled Peter out of the water with, with one arm, so Jesus obviously was strong as well. But I picture Peter being a strong man as a, as a fisherman growing up on the Sea of Galilee. I bet when he needed to give a challenge or give an exhortation, he could do it, and he could do it well. We're going to find that this chapter is filled with exhortations. Exhortation first to pastors, to elders, to shepherds, and then to the whole body. So I hope that we're encouraged and we're challenged. When we think about Peter writing to pastors, he was a pastor. Jesus commissioned him, in fact, to be the first pastor. But the pathway for Peter to pastor was different than you what might think. It began with him being dedicated. Jesus saying, follow me. Peter left his fishing nets, left everything to follow Christ. But unfortunately, Peter was prideful. Ever felt that way? A little bit prideful of the fact that, man, I'm all in for Christ. And I've made so many sacrifices for the cause of Christ. And that pride ultimately led to Peter being humbled. He did what he never thought he would do. He denied the Lord. Here he is in this place of, of failure, and Jesus goes to the cross and dies for him and rises again, restores Peter. Peter's quick to go back to what God had called him out of, out of fishing. And Jesus waits patiently on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. John, Peter's best friend, recognizes that it's the Lord. And Peter, as soon as he sees Christ, the risen Savior, recognizes who he is. He swims to Jesus. Jesus has breakfast ready for him. Jesus says, Peter, I want you to come. I want you to dine. Do you love me more than these? As Peter said that he would follow Christ even if the disciples rejected him. Do you love me more than these? Maybe the fish that Peter was so eager to go back to. And in that conversation, Peter's restored. Jesus says, I want you to go 
take care of my people, take care of my flock, tend to my sheep, then in the book of Acts, we see him changed. We see him filled with the Holy Spirit. Hopefully, Peter's life is a testimony to us that God uses imperfect people. God uses fallen people for his glory. God's still in the business of restoring us and commissioning us and filling us. If you think your life is too far gone to be used by the Lord, take a look at Peter's life. So the pastor writes to pastors, the elders who are among you, I exhort. He challenges the elders, those spiritual leaders who are amongst the church as they're receiving this letter. I'm sure it was a difficult time to be an elder as the church was being dispersed and was under persecution. A time where they could easily be discouraged. A time where they could lose track of some of God's people. Maybe get calloused. Maybe get frustrated. And Peter knows this is the perfect time for them to receive a challenge, to receive an exhortation. I who am a fellow elder. Peter didn't put himself on a pedestal. He didn't consider himself to be the Pope. He doesn't say, well, here I am, the great Peter, who walked with Christ for three years, who's started churches, who's an apostle. He simply says, guys, I'm in this together with you. I'm a fellow elder. And that's the way that we to see ourselves, is that we are joined in the body of Christ. We're joint members. We're partners. There's not a greater and a lesser. Christ is the hero, and Peter simply sees himself fitting into God's story. And a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Peter watched the the suffering of Jesus. Watched the rejection that Christ went through with his own family. Witnessed the crucifixion of, of Christ. Was there to see the wounds and the scars of Jesus. He witnessed the the sufferings of Christ. How did that impact Peter throughout his life to witness Christ as the servant, to witness Christ being willing to suffer? How did that change Peter's mindset on the suffering that he would go through in his life? And Peter says, I'm a witness to the suffering of Christ, but I get to partake in the glory, the glory that is going to be revealed. As we read through this section of scripture, it is on Peter's mind, the coming of Christ, and Christ being revealed. So here's his challenge. Shepherd the flock of God, which is among you, serving as overseers. The first exhortation, exhortation to elders is shepherd the flock. Shepherd the flock. Right here in these first three verses, Peter uses three words that are synonymous. That describe the role of a pastor. But each are specific in their meaning. He uses the word elder in verse 1. That that speaks of having some maturity and experience. It's a history with God. It's not just the chronological how long you've lived. But your maturity in the Lord. Then he uses the word bishop. To describe the ministry of not overloading or overbearing, but as overseeing. In the New King James, it's listed as overseer. That, that describes the role that is given, that overseeing. And then we see pastor or shepherd. Shepherd means pastor. And this describes the method of feeding the flock. God desires to raise up elders inside of churches to provide spiritual leadership, to care for, to feed 
to correct, to rebuke, to encourage, to visit in the hospital, to tend for a broken marriage. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you. Interesting timing because this week we're taking a staff personal retreat for a couple of days. We were going to have a staff retreat up in the mountains, but because of COVID, it's not the best idea for all of us to be hanging out together at camp, right? And so we're having a personal retreat to just seek the Lord and be encouraged. And please be in prayer for us because we were doing that Tuesday and today. And then tomorrow we meet here at the church and share what God has been speaking to us. But I'm so thankful for the team of pastors that God's brought together at RMC, the, the elders, our board of elders that God has, has put in place. And, and this is what God has called us to as pastors, is to shepherd the flock, to, to feed the flock, to, to serve the flock, to protect the flock. I love what Peter says here, and he says, shepherd the flock of God which is among you. This shows that Pastors are to be among God's people, not separated from God's people, but in relationship with God's people. These elders were in relationship with uh, God's people. It's a great time to be praying for pastors of churches throughout the country and the world. It's It's a challenging time to be a pastor, just like it's challenging in a lot of professions and a lot of jobs, right? But this isn't a job, it's a calling that the Lord gives to and as we've been talking about awakening and God awakening the the church, I believe God's going to be awakening pastors, reminding pastors of their call to to shepherd the flock of God, to care for the flock of God, to serve as as overseers. We go on in this exhortation to elders, and the second thing is to serve the flock, to shepherd the flock, love, care, feed, protect, but also to serve the flock. Not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. The attitude in which a pastor should have should be not one of like, oh, you've twisted my arm, I guess I've got to be a pastor, you know? Not that kind of service, but willingly. Man, I'm happy to be able to serve God's people. It's, it's a blessing to be able to serve the Lord by caring for his people. The motivation for being a pastor shouldn't be dishonest gain. How can I fleece the flock? There's some pastors that have sought out that position to think, well, how can I get dishonest gain? I'll win people's trust and then be able to get to their their pocketbook. And that's never to be the motivation of a pastor. Nor lording it over those entrusted to you. This idea of pride, but being a servant and being an example to the flock. I speak for myself, and I think our whole pastoral staff, it's a privilege to be able to serve you as pastors. It's something that we feel called to do, and it's a joy to be able to do it. And you guys make it easy. You guys do. It's a wonderful group of believers here that love the Lord, and it's a privilege to be able to to serve. And you can continue to to pray for us as we pray for you guys. In verse 4, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Pastors are simply under shepherds to the chief shepherd. Jesus is described as the true shepherd, the good shepherd, the great shepherd. He is the shepherd. And the chief shepherd, he's going to appear. He's going to come back. 
And when he comes back, pastors, elders will receive a crown of glory that doesn't fade away. So there is a greater responsibility that's placed on pastors and elders, a burden of leadership, but there's also a blessing. There's an eternal reward here that comes with being a pastor or or an elder. The idea here is someday Jesus is going to show up for his flock. He's going to show up for his people. And hopefully we as pastors are found faithful when that happens. When Jesus does show up for his flock, hopefully pastors are being faithful uh, to, to the Lord. Maybe you're being stirred to be a pastor. Maybe as you hear this, you go, could it be that God would use me to pastor, to shepherd his flock? And Paul writes to Timothy and he says, those of you that desire the work of a bishop, you desire a good thing. So part of, as you examine that, is do I even have a desire to do it? And that could be the Lord stirring you to say, yes, you are called uh, to this. I like the way Charles Spurgeon described a call to be a pastor. Where he says, if you can do anything else, by all means do it. But at the end of that conversation, if you have a burden to pastor, then you know you're, you're called by the Lord. There seems to be a tension in a lot of pastors' hearts that are called to pastor where it's like, man, I don't know if I want to do this, and yet the Lord's calling me to do this, and I try to walk away from this calling. You know, it's been said that pastors have their letter of resignation always written in their desk. If it's not written in their desk, I can guarantee you it's written in our minds. Like, I, I'm ready to send this. I'm ready to, I'm ready to resign. But yet, it's the Lord. It's the Lord putting that calling and reminding that this is a a true privilege. And so as you journey through, is God calling me to pastor? Wrestle through that. Can I do something else or do I always come back to, man, this is what the Lord has called me to do. In verse 5, likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So this is exhortation to all. After the exhortation to the pastors, now to all, be clothed with humility. And specifically here, Paul, he writes to young people. Is it true that young people generally need to be challenged in humility? (laughs) I think we would look back at our lives, those of us that don't fall into the young people category. I'll let you figure that out if you're in the young people category or not. But I look back and go, man, there was a need for humility in my younger years. There's just that tendency when we're young to think, man, I've got everything figured out. And so young people are called on the carpet to submit to your elders, submit to those that are older and more mature and who have walked with the Lord younger. Submission is to come underneath them, come underneath their protection Come underneath their umbrella and be able to learn from them. And by submitting to your elders in the Lord, you're clothing yourself in humility. And I got to tell you, humility is attractive to God and people, isn't it? That's the best shirt you can wear is the shirt of humility. And humility is tied to our submission to elders, our our submission to authority that God has, has placed over us. That's where humility is tested. Maybe in the workplace, there's someone where they're doing something and they're doing it different than the way that you would do it, but it's not unbiblical, it's not wrong, it's it's not compromise, 
And to say, I'm going to clothe myself in humility. This is the authority that God has placed uh, in, in my life. You know, what's my attitude towards my parents? What's, what's my attitude towards those that have journeyed further in this life? Well, let's clothe ourselves with humility. And then here's this principle. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So in what way do you want God to be postured towards you, towards me? Do we want God to be on the offensive where he is resisting us? Or do we want to be in this place where he's giving grace? Grace is God's sweet spot. He loves to pour out grace, but who does he give grace to? He gives grace to the humble. When we're broken, when we're needy, when we're aware of our own sinfulness, when we're aware of our own lack of resources, and God's help in our lives, where we're humble before him, and that humility is shown in the way that we treat those who have gone before us, then God gives grace. He gives unearned, undeserved, unmerited favor. But the opposite is true. He opposes the, the proud. He resists the proud. And in our pride, when we say, I, I don't got to listen to those that are older than me. I don't got to listen to elders. I don't have to listen to, to anybody. I got this all figured out, right? Then God resists. And one thing we know of God throughout Scripture is he's really good at humbling the proud. He humbled Nebuchadnezzar. He humbles that proud person. And remember who's writing this. Peter. He knows this. You could sum up Peter's story in this. When he was proud, God resisted him. He failed. He did what he never thought he would do. But yet when he was humble, God restored him and God used his life as a trophy for God's grace. So therefore, here's the application of this. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. In context, how do we humble ourselves under God's mighty hand? In walking in humility in the way that we treat elders. Also, verse 7 shows us how to humble ourselves under God's mighty hand, trusting that he'll lift us up in due time. This is a way of walking in humility, verse 7. Casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. This is the next exhortation. Cast all your care upon him. We may not express this out loud or declare this cognitively, but when we say, God, I've got this, that's an expression of pride. I'm going to take care of this burden. I'm going to take care of this difficulty. Well, Lord's like, okay. What do you do with your kids when they say, Dad, I got this? Well, you know, you might not. You might not have this. You may need a little help with this. No, 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 Dad. I got this. You let them go for it, right? Just go for it. And then when they say, Dad, could you help? You're like, oh, music to my ears. I would be happy to help. How many times do we go to the Lord? Hey, I got this. I got this figured out. I can navigate my way through this. I can pull myself up by my, my bootstraps. And the Lord's saying, let me know when you get done with that road of pride. But when we cast our care upon him, when we give it to him, then he gives us grace and he comes and helps in that time of need. 
In Proverbs 12.25, it says, Anxiety in the heart of a man causes depression, but a good word makes it glad. Anxiety in the heart of a man causes depression. Worry, care. When we're holding on to something and we're not giving it over to God, it's going to cause depression. Is there a weight in our lives, a depression in our lives that's come from a lack of giving it over to God? In Philippians 4, Paul says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. Don't be anxious. Be thankful. Give it to the Lord over in prayer. The motivation for casting our care upon him is for he cares for you. He really cares. He loves you. He's proven and displayed that love by giving his son to die upon the cross. We shouldn't doubt whether he cares or not because we can look to the blood of Jesus, his hands and his feet to know, to know, to know, to know that God cares. So give that worry over to the one who cares the most. (laughs) He's wanting to help. He's wanting to bear that burden. I know we've got worries. I know we've got burdens. It may be financial. It may be physical. It may be relational. Every single one of us tonight carries a burden. And God is calling us to cast it upon him. Say, Lord, I'm giving this over to you and I'm asking for your help in this and your wisdom. And what I find in my life is it's easy to cast the care to the Lord at a moment in time and then pick it up 15 minutes later. You with me? Pick it up 15 hours later. Give it to the Lord over lunch, but by the time you're going to bed and it's late at night, and your mind starts to spin out of control, you start taking it back. Start carrying that burden once again. Turn with me over to Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus addresses worry. He addresses our, our cares. Matthew 6, verse 25. Therefore, I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Is anybody with me that you don't really like birds? Anybody else out there? I'm the only one in here that doesn't like birds. I mean, they're nice to look at for, from a distance, but I don't know why you'd ever have one as a pet. And I don't have a lot of compassion upon birds. It's like if I see a bird that's, that's wounded, it's like, you know what? They peck each other to death. That's what birds do. Like they make these nice songs, but they're mean and they're, they're vicious it's like, well, you got what you deserved. You're a varmint. You're, you're just nasty. You're just, and they, they poop on you. They're, they're just, they're birds, right? 
I'm not much of an animal person. I can tolerate a dog, but anyway. But God cares for the birds of the air. He's like, these are my creation, and I'm going to make sure that they're cared for. And here's the message. If God cares for the birds of the air, how much more does he care for you? Because you have more value than the birds. Which of you worrying can add one cubit to his stature? You get any taller by worrying about your height? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither tore, toil, nor spin. The, the flowers, they're not worried. They're not toiling. They're not contorting. Oh, I've got to grow. They're simply hanging out in trust. And yet I say to you, not even Solomon in all of his glory was arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothes the graph of, of the field, which today is, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven... Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own troubles. God doesn't want our concern on the burdens. He wants our attention to be upon the kingdom. And when we get overwhelmed with these burdens, we lose sight of the kingdom. We lose sight of the fact that Jesus has died for sins, that Jesus has risen from the grave, that Jesus is returning. All we can think about is this burden that we're carrying. So God says, give me the burden, stop, stop worrying, and seek first the kingdom. And there's something here that's so insightful. Just take a day at a time. Don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow's going to worry about itself, but sufficient for the day are the troubles of its own. There's enough to be focused on today. Sometimes we're so focused out in, on the future, we miss the opportunities and the challenges of today. So church, how about it? How about it? You ready to cast some concern to the Lord? You ready to cast some worry to the Lord? He's here right now. Give it over to him. Don't even wait till the end of the message. That list of burdens that you have, give it to the Lord. Verse eight, be sober, be vigilant because your adversary, the devil, walks around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Next exhortation is be self-controlled and alert. Sober, vigilant, because Satan is out there. He's a lion seeking who he may devour. Think of the Roman Colosseum. That's the backdrop in which Peter is writing. Christians are getting martyred for their faith. So Satan, he wants to come and he wants to destroy through division, through sin, through doubt. Church, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We need to be aware that there is an enemy that wants to, to get us. So we're going to be sober. So we're going to be vigilant. If you're walking through a, a bad neighborhood, you're going to be sober. You're going to be vigilant. You understand, man, this is not safe in this particular place at this particular time. And that's the way to, we're to live out our Christian life. Not out of fear, but engaged in the battle. And that brings us to the next exhortation. Resist him, steadfast in faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. We're not the only ones in the spiritual battle. 
All believers around the world are in this spiritual battle. Next exhortation, resist the enemy. Resist the enemy. Resist him. James writes and he says, submit to God, resist the enemy, and he will flee from you. Satan likes to roar. He likes to devour, but he's already lost the victory. Jesus is won. Satan is defeated. When Christ rose from the dead, Satan was defeated. We don't run from the enemy. We're to resist the enemy. How do we resist? Through prayer. By crying out to the Lord, I'm sensing Satan's attacking here. Satan's trying to do a number on my family. Satan's trying to discourage and divide the church. How do we respond in prayer? Lord, would you be our protection? Would you bind the work of the enemy? Would you cover us? Would you be our refuge and our fortress? Prayer is how we resist the enemy. The whole armor of God, Ephesians chapter 5, to walk in and to operate in the armor that God has provided. Write that down and study it more. The armor of God. We run from sin is a way that we resist the, the enemy. He's trying to get me off guard here, so I'm going to run from sin. How did Satan experience Christ's resistance? How did Christ resist Satan? Through the word of God. Jesus, when he was tempted by Satan, he quoted the word out loud. Peter reduces it down here in verse 9 to be steadfast in faith. This is a way that we resist the enemy. Satan's attacking. Don't give in to his discouragement, but be steadfast in faith. Continue to trust the Lord. Verse 10, but may the God of all grace, who's called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you've suffered a while. Don't we have a wonderful God, a wonderful Father? The God of all grace. This expression is, you can't even begin to calculate the grace of God. His unearned, undeserved, unmerited favor. He has grace for sin, grace for trial, grace for, for difficulty. He's the God of all grace. And he's called us to eternal glory by Christ Jesus. We have a reservation in heaven as believers after you've suffered for a little while. Church, you're only going to suffer for a little while. This life is only going to last so long, and then you're going to forever be with the Lord. Suffering is temporary. Aren't you thankful for that? Suffering's temporary. Continued promise of God, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. This is what Peter prays for over the church. After you've suffered a while, you're going to be perfected. That God would establish you, that God would strengthen you, that God would settle you. Sounds like exactly what we need this evening, that God would establish us, that he would strengthen us, and that he would settle us. Here's the purpose, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. God receives the glory. By Silvanus, our faithful brother, as I consider him, I've written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that it is the true grace of God in which you stand. Give special commendation to Silvanus. Verse 13, she who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you, and so does Mark, my son. There's a church in Babylon that's greeting this church that's receiving this letter. The gospel's exploded and moved throughout the world. How we need the church to spread through the Middle East again today. John Mark is with 
Peter and is referred to as the son in the faith. John Mark hears Peter's perspective and writes the gospel of Mark. John Mark's story is also one of grace and redemption as he gave up on his first missionary journey. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Oh, too bad you've got a mask on. Can't, no greeting each other with holy kisses tonight. This shows the real power of greeting. Real, I know it's a little bit more difficult right now, but let's be careful to give attention to greeting each other and to showing the love of Christ to each other in greeting. Peace to you, all who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. So we sum up First Peter. I think First Peter has been perfect timing for us as we're walking through some of these challenges. Maybe tonight before you go to bed, read through First Peter again. It's five chapters, take you a few minutes. And what verses stood out to you in our study of First Peter? And I hope, I hope one of those is cast your cares upon him for he cares for you. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. How, how, how proud is it to go, I've, I've got this, I, I've got this. No, 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 I, I've got this. And the Lord's just watching us suffer and he's waiting for us to cast that care upon him. And as that care wants to sneak back in the back door of our hearts and our lives, give it over to the Lord. Give it over to the Lord. Give it over to the Lord because he cares for you. What a tremendous time for believers to be walking in the peace of God that surpasses understanding. As the world is in turmoil, for them to look into the eyes and the countenance of believers and see something different and see the peace of God that surpasses. The individual trials that we go through in life that test us and trial and break us to be able to be walking in the peace of God. So as you take communion tonight, he cares for you. We get to remember that he cares for us. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Don't ever forget what the Christian life's all about. It's not what we do, it's what he's done. He's proven his love for us. And to take communion in celebration, Lord, I know that you love me. So I'm trusting in you You've taken care of my sin. I know that you can deal with the situation that I'm going through. Let's stand together and let's pray and let's move into communion together. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to come and celebrate communion. We don't want this to be an empty tradition, but to really be reminded of how much you love us, of how much you care for us. And in each of us are carrying burdens, anxieties, worries. And right now we choose to give those over to you. And as we meet with you in communion, we exchange our anxiety and our worry for your peace. Lord, would you meet with us in a special way? May tonight be a moment of change perspective. As we walk in humility, that you would just pour out grace. Lord, you have grace for the specific trials that we find ourselves in. So we thank you and praise you in, in Jesus' name.